0: Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders. Police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes. Amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you the highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words, and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. You may not immediately recognize the name Ron Stallworth, but you likely know who he is. An investigation from Ron's law enforcement career is captured in the Oscar-award-winning film Black Klansman, the story of an African-American undercover police detective who somehow, unbelievably, unimaginably, bluffed his way into the Ku Klux Klan. If you think you heard me wrong, you didn't. Ron's cop career started very innocently and without fanfare.
1: I was hired by the Colorado Springs Police Department in November of 1972 at the age of 19. I was the first black police cadet, not police officer. The uh, police department at that time had what was called the cadet program. It was for high school graduates between the ages of 17 to 19 years of age who aspired to be uh, cops. You were hired. You, uh, you had to be graduates. You were hired you were put through the police academy, you would you did uh, civilian support jobs in the department because you were not yet old enough to uh, carry a gun, you did the support jobs within the department. For example, I worked ID technician in the records bureau, processing fingerprints and records. I also worked, uh, believe it or not, as a uh, meter maid, riding three-wheeled motorcycles that uh, issuing parking tickets once you turned uh, 21 you were then uh, you also wore a brown uniform the brown uniform was just like the uh, the blue uniforms of the uh, officers except it was brown you had a badge that said cadet on it it was identical to the police officers except their said patrolman or detective your said uh, cadet and at the age of 21 you switched your uniform from brown to blue your badge from cadet to patrolman, and then you uh, started your field training program with an experienced officer. I expressed a desire to do undercover work. It was something I wanted to do. I saw these uh, saw these long-haired white hippie dudes coming to the ID records counter asking for criminal records, and I thought, who the hell are these guys? I was told by the uh, people I worked with these were actually cops they were uh, narcs and that you give them anything they want and you never acknowledge them in public because they could be working undercover and your acknowledgement could put their lives in jeopardy and I thought that was the neatest thing in the world and I like the fact that they looked the way they did uh, but that they were actually police officers carrying guns and doing the job and I wanted to be like that. I I just thought it was neat to be able to look like that, mix and mingle within the general public and no one around you knew who you were or what your purpose was. I thought that was so cool at the age of 19.
0: In April of 1975, Ron was assigned to work undercover and monitor a speech being delivered by Stokely Carmichael, the civil rights activist who was one of the founding fathers of the Black Panther Party. Much of what Ron dealt with then is relevant and current, 40-plus years later.
1: My uh, first undercover assignment, I was 21 at the time. I was still a rookie. Stokely Carmichael was coming into Colorado Springs to give a speech. And because I had expressed a desire to do undercover work, they came to me. Now let me back up a little bit in the interim after i got sworn in as a patrolman on my birthday june of 1974 when i turned 21 they had hired about uh, four other blacks in the department to be patrolmen so before i turned 21 we had we actually had four black officers uh before me i turned 21 i become an officer But nobody had expressed a desire to to work narcotics, only me. They come to me to work undercover for the Stokely speech. They asked me if I had a problem with that. I said no. I go and uh, get outfitted. Uh, By that, I mean they put the uh, listening devices on me, the the wire, um, take me up, give me some money. Spending money. I asked them all the questions uh, that I thought was pertinent. Uh, can I buy drugs if it's offered to me? Can I buy a drink, which was probably the most important question that I wanted to hear? Uh, can I buy a drink while I'm in the bar? Uh, they said, Yeah, only one. Basically, they said, uh, You're only there to listen and gauge the audience reaction because we don't know what's going on. We can't sit a white officer in, or at least we don't feel comfortable sending one in. And we want to know what the audience reaction is going to be to Stokely's speech. We understand about his uh, ability to speak, his ability to sway a crowd. We want you to be in there, to be the department's eyes and ears, and uh, report back what you see and hear. And that was my marching orders. So I went in, I listened, I monitored the uh, audience reaction, and he gave a very fiery speech. And the thing about Stokely, Stokely and any charismatic speaker is very dangerous. You can get caught up in the emotion that they bring. I knew that, I knew who Stokely was. I mean, less than four or five years earlier, I had watched Stokely on TV at uh, Panther Party uh, uh, events and had watched him uh, give speeches and had watched the audience reaction then. And I knew what Stokely was capable of doing with his rhetoric. And I knew that I was on the opposite side of this uh, equation, this dance that we were doing in this uh, in this nightclub where he was speaking. And yet... I was listening to Stokely, not as a police officer, I was listening to him as a black man who kind of uh, was in sync with his ideas. That was very alarming to me that I had to step back for a moment and get back into my undercover role. I got caught up in his emotion, in the audience reaction, and I had to regroup mentally. No, and and that's, that was the thing, Jay. I, I believed in what Stokely was saying from the standpoint of being a black man, but I disagreed with what he was saying when he talked about picking up the gun and killing Whitey. And I had, to, in my own mind, I was in this uh, conflicting mode of how do I balance this, uh, this, this, this conflict, this equation. How do I do this dance and not lose sight of the fact that I am a police officer and what he's advocating is uh, wrong and I'm supposed to be uh, on the side that's uh, preventing that? But yet I believed in what he was saying on the other side. And that's the dance that we as black officers all across this country back then and I'm sure still now that's the dance that we always have to uh, to do. How do we balance uh, our blackness against the blue uniform that we wear? Well, you have to remember during that period of time, when Dr. King was alive, you had Dr. King and his uh, peaceful nonviolent movement. You had Malcolm X who believed in uh, responding by any means necessary. And you had the Black Panther Party who were dedicated uh, in the spirit of Malcolm, and who believed in, uh, obeying the law, but confronting, uh, police officers and making sure that police officers, uh, followed the law to the letter. And they didn't, uh, open legal carry in confronting police officers, which didn't sit well with cops at the time in Oakland. So you have these three elements going on at the same time. And I've always maintained and told people when asked, had I been uh, one of the so-called warriors on the street, I would not have been one of Dr. King's soldiers. I could not have been, because I did not believe in turning the other cheek. I thought that was kind of a, to be honest with you, I thought it was kind of stupid. When someone hits you, kicks you, beats you down, and you turn the other cheek and say, do it to me some more. So of the, of the other two groups, I would have been more inclined to join one of them. I saw the Bull Connor thing in Birmingham, Alabama. I saw that on the news several times back then. And I think it was in 66 or 67 when that happened. Where he turned, uh, he had the fire hoses turned, high pressure fire hoses turned on him, and the uh, German Shepherd police dog. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. The people are still singing We Shall Overcome and walking and uh, 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 smiling and carrying on. And I thought, that was nuts. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that. And yet, at the same time, I recognize if they had broken ranks and uh, uh, marched aggressively or ran aggressively towards the cops, the cops would have probably pulled their guns and started shooting. It would have been probably, probably would have been justified in doing so. But that would not have been what I could have done. Dr. King uh, was very noble in, in his cause. Ultimately, his, his cause won out but i could not have been one of his soldiers it just wasn't my my way but like i tell officers and i told officers when i was working there's a reason why the black community doesn't trust or uh, doesn't trust us didn't trust us it's uh it dates back there's a history behind it uh, and we need to understand that history we have not always been fair to the black community any minority minority community we have treated them wrong and if you want proof of that, go look at some of the footage from the Civil Rights Movement. It's all there in black and white. You look at the L.A. riots, how that got started. We have taken advantage over the years of our, of our, uh, of our badge, of our oath of office, of our right to carry a gun and to use that gun. We have abused the Constitution on numerous occasions in relation to our dealings with uh, the minority community and it's just simply not right what's been done so there is a natural distrust that exists between the minority community and the police community and i know when i was working street gangs in, in utah i did everything i could to try to bridge that gap i got forceful when need be and I tried to reconcile with the community whenever possible. I tried to, I won't say be a peacemaker, but ultimately to show the community that I was not the enemy, that I could be a friend, that police officers could be friends with them. I was not, um, my primary motivation was not to, uh, live, to throw their kids in jail, but to try to help them and their children. We can try as police officers to, uh, to be better at our jobs, to more, to live more positively, uh, live up more positively to the constitution, to our oaths, and we can stop taking advantage of, uh, of the fact that we do have this enormous, uh, powerful uh uh ability at our disposal uh too often we have too many badge heavy cops i worked with uh uh, a badge heavy cop he in fact he's depicted in the movie guy who likes to take advantage of the fact that he's an officer he can do whatever he wants or thinks he can there are too many of us uh too many cops like that in our profession the question is, when you come across police officers like that, what do we, as uh, people in the profession, do about that? Do we erect, do we erect that blue wall of silence, because we don't want to rat out our brother officers, or do we weed them out? Do we get rid of the bad apples? Well, I see it. I see it as right or wrong. You're either doing the job the proper way or you're not. You're either, upholding, you're either upholding your oath or you're not. You're either living your job by the constitutional oath you took or you're not. And if you're not, then you don't belong in the profession. If you're abusing your right as a police officer, you need to be uh, weeded out. I, for one, have no problems or had no problems, and I'm going to use the term, I had no problem snitching off a bad cop if I had to. I didn't consider it snitching. What I considered it, or what I looked at it, was getting rid of a bad apple that was tainting the profession and ultimately was going to make us all look bad, and that included me.
0: What is it like to have a portion of your life, the piece of American history you lived and created, played out on movie screens across the world, and having yourself depicted by a movie star? Ron's character was portrayed by the actor John David Washington, the son of Denzel.
1: It's an amazing feeling. It's very surrealistic. I've seen the movie, believe it or not, I've seen the movie uh, 42 and a half times. I say 42 and a half because my wife and I were watching it again a week ago, and we haven't finished watching it, so we're still in the halfway point. Every time I see it, I get choked up. And I still, uh, it still draws a tear or two from my eye at certain points in it. First time I saw it was in a private screening at Universal Studios, one of their backlot theaters. There was only six of us in the audience. Every time I heard my name mentioned, which was quite a bit throughout the movie, uh, I got choked up at that. And the ending of the movie, the last 15 minutes or so, that climactic scene, I literally it was, I had tears in my eyes. Uh, I just couldn't stop the flow.
0: Spike Lee was the film's director. Spike is one of the most prolific, successful, and controversial filmmakers of all time.
1: He's totally different in person. Spike Lee comes across as kind of hardcore, very edgy. I've heard him described as a militant, as a black power advocate, and I would dispute all of that. Spike is dedicated towards his community of Brooklyn. He hosts free uh, neighborhood party, block parties. He pays for everything for to get the people of the community together, to get them to socialize and uh, welcome each other. He's a very outgoing person when you get to know him. He is very uh, he's very mild mannered. I would say that the media doesn't really understand Spike Lee, and so they take liberties in their portrayal of him. Spike only gives the media a, a bit of what they what he wants them to get to receive. For example, he speaks he speaks in very short. Uh, short-clipped uh, terms. Um, you ask him a question, he may say yes or no or maybe, and that's it. He doesn't give you extended answers unless he absolutely has to. If you watch him on a, uh, um, one of these midnight talk shows, uh, Ballon or Colbert, or one of those shows, he speaks very low speaks very soft and his answers are very short unless he he unless you raise a subject matter that's if he's very passionate about and I tell you, I'll tell you a subject he's passionate about and that's Donald Trump he'll go off on a tangent about Donald Trump and when he's uh, wore the subject out he'll shut up and not say another word but spike is a very uh, He's a very open person. If he, if he likes you, if he accepts you, he's easy to talk to.
0: Hollywood often takes creative license in the telling of true stories. In Black Klansmen, the characterizations were based in and on authentic events and people.
1: But Patrice was the, uh, in the movie, Patrice is the president of the Black Student Union at Colorado College. I only had one involvement with the Black Student Union at Colorado College, and that was a meeting that they had sponsored for all of the Alphabet Soup protest groups. That's all these protest groups that had uh, three letters or whatever uh, initials that they used for their name. Uh, they met together to at, at the college to discuss a strategy for how they were going to deal with uh, their grievance against Uh, David Dukes clan and being an intelligence officer I went to this meeting undercover stood in the back and listened to these groups talk and that's all I did was listen and the president of the black student union at that time we're talking 1978 the president was actually a male not a female and I listened to all of the stuff and when they finished I left, went to my office, and wrote a report about the meeting. And that was the only encounter I had with the Colorado College Black Student Union. But the screenwriters uh, wrote a uh, a whole section about the Black Student Union, and they incorporated uh, a female president in the form of uh, Patrice, and made her. A mild love interest, but it never happened.
0: Ron's partner in the investigation is known as Chuck in his book and Flip in the movie and portrayed by the actor Adam Driver.
1: Well, there's no effort to disguise him. Chuck did not want to have anything to do with uh, my writing of the the book. I gave him the opportunity to uh, tell his side of the story. Uh, He didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, in any way, shape, or form, and I honored his uh, desire not to have anything to do with it by simply uh, not identifying the reporters or anyone else. And when the movie, uh, when we progressed to a movie, he still didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I continued the honor to honor it. Chuck, uh, Chuck was a good undercover cop. He was. Uh, a junior detective to me. I was in the detective bureau, bureau before he was. He came uh, He came about a year after, maybe a few months earlier. He was a good undercover cop, and that's why I suggested him. He was about my height, my weight. That was uh, one difference in the movie. Adam Driver, who played him, Adam Driver was, uh, and they changed the name in the movie from Chuck to... Uh, Chuck's not his real name, by the way, but they, they changed his name from Chuck, as I have it in the book, to Flip. Adam Driver is about uh, three, four inches taller than Chuck and weighs a little bit more than Chuck. So that's the physical difference between them. If you uh, notice in the movie, Adam Driver wears a red uh, plaid shirt quite a bit. Chuck used to come to work a lot with a red plaid shirt. That's why he's dressed that way. So that part is accurate. But beyond that, Adam Driver had nothing to work with because he couldn't talk to Chuck to find some, some things out about him. And all he could go on was what I told him.
0: The bombing in the movie was created through the imagination of screenwriters. But like other fictionalized elements, it was based in truthful circumstance.
1: Yeah, the the bombing at the end of the movie never happened. But the bombing scene, that bombing scene, by the way, was the first scene that they filmed when they started the process of making the movie. And that bombing scene was in there because it was was alluding to conversations that I had on the phone with uh, some of the players in which they talked about bombing the two gay bars that we had in Colorado Springs at the time. They talked about it. They only wanted to bomb them for one reason and one reason only, and that's because they were gay bars. They didn't like gays. They had conversations with me on the phone about bombing these these clubs. That's when the FBI got interested in my investigation because of their uh, jurisdiction with uh, bombings. But we felt that there was a lot of uh, potential in this uh, development because there were a couple of Klansmen who, it turned out, had ties to Fort Carson, Colorado, and their job at Fort Carson was ordnance. They were trained to blow things up. When the FBI found this out, they were very, very interested.
0: In the film, Ron takes a Polaroid selfie with Klan leader David Duke. That was not a fabrication.
1: That happened, but the Polaroid, I, I lost the Polaroid years ago. Of course, had I known they were going to make a movie out of it and I was going to write the book, I would have taken better care of it. Yeah, that scene actually happened, and it happened. They, uh, fight reproduced it uh, pretty accurately.
0: In Black Klansmen, Ron throws a brick through a window as a distraction to his partner being subjected to a lie detector test. The event itself may have been creative screenwriting, but the circumstances of the scene are based in actual events.
1: Yeah, the brick throw was a a creative screenwriting. However, the the interrogation scene would flip. That did not happen. However, one of the techniques that the Klan people were using and that they were advertising because they were reporting it in the media when they would give magazine interviews at the time, They were reporting that they were going to be interviewing, uh, or I should say, they were going to be polygraphing new applicants to make sure that they weren't police officers, undercover cops. They were actually advertising that in uh, their, their media interviews. So that's why that scene was in there.
0: Ron overcame the impossible, but the notoriety he has received has not been without personal controversy.
1: I'm immensely proud of this investigation because I was told by a lieutenant and a sergeant who tried to settle my career and ultimately were the reason why I left Colorado Springs. Uh, I was told that I could never pull this investigation off because I was black. I was determined to prove them wrong where this investigation was concerned, and I ultimately did prove them wrong, but uh, I got the last laugh uh, Iron- Ironically, in the entire Colorado Springs Police Department, I've only had probably uh, five officers who have taken the time to congratulate me on the uh, on the achievement of uh, the book and uh, the movie. I can tell you that one of the reasons why there's a lot of uh, animosity towards me and why they have not uh, openly embraced. The fact that this has happened is because they don't like my politics. And my politics, plain and simple, is that I don't support the gentleman that's currently occupying the White House, and they do. You can have your political views. I could have mine. But in the end, if I, ha- if I see you as a friend, you will always be my friend until you give me a, a specific reason why you shouldn't be. And your politics is not going to be the determining factor. As to whether we maintain a friendship or not, that's how I feel. That's how I've always felt. I have some friends that uh, I have one good friend out of Oklahoma. Okay, Jerry Flowers is a very close friend of mine. Jerry Flowers is a die-hard Trump supporter, and I tell Jerry all the time, "You're screwed up for liking him," but I love you like a brother, and we'll continue to love you like a brother. And he looks. He says to me. Buddy, you're screwed up for not liking Trump, but I love you like a brother. we crack up laughing at each other. I have always told people that undercover work for me was the passion. It was, it was like a calling. I've always respected police work in general, but I never wanted to be a uniformed cop. I never wanted to make a career as a uniformed cop. Nothing against uniform police work. They're the backbone of our profession. But it wasn't for me. I wanted to be an undercover cop. And the path that I took to become one, um, I never kidded myself. It was because I was black. And the Colorado Springs Police Department in 1972 um, had none. And by the time I had turned 21, and became a police officer. They needed a black officer uh, to work undercover and came to me and I eagerly answered that call.
0: Ron's heart and soul lies in undercover work. Always has, always will.
1: And once I got into undercover work, I was determined never to put a uniform on again. And with the exception of a four month uh, period, I never wore a uniform after that. I liked undercover work because it was uh, the danger that was inherent in it. I found it to be a rush. It was uh, something that I thrived on. I uh, you might say it's in the blood. You either have a knack for it or you don't. I worked for a sergeant uh, in narcotics for a brief period of time who was terrified. When he had to go and make undercover dope buys. He literally shook with fear. He turned red in the face. He chain-smoked. And he even told us, those of us at the squad, that that was the most terrifying thing he ever had to do, was to go undercover, and he was only making a, a buy of a, of a marijuana joint. But he was, he was that frightened of it. And... You know, I lived for that type of stuff, and I found it to be a passion of mine, and I still do. And I, I like the fact that you had to, you had to be creative. You had to make up things as you went along in order to stay on top of the game that's being played. It's like a chess match. Involving two people, and you had to be in t- You had to be on top of this little chess game, and uh, could not lose sight of the fact that it's a deadly chess game. And uh, you had to be creative at all times. And I found that challenging. And it was that challenge that I thrived on. And I, uh, I just found it fascinating. Still do. And for me, there's nothing like it.
0: Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.